welcome to Conveyancing Matters with Lorraine and Stu. Join us for a chat about all things property. Hello, Stu. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, lovely. Well, on this Conveyancing Matters, um, we both thought it would probably be very topical and, uh, and a good thing to talk about would be um, gifted deposits. That is the situation where we've got someone who is buying their property and part of the money that they're contributing comes from sort of source other than themselves. Um, so sort of to kick off then, Stu, I mean, it's a bit of an obvious question for any lawyers watching, but for anybody who's not a lawyer, um, and, and that's part of why we're doing conveyancing matters so people can find out the detail of what we're doing. Um, you know, how generally speaking then does a firm find out on a purchase transaction where the um, buyer's money is coming from, Stu? How do you handle it? Well, one of the first things we do when a client instructs us to act on their behalf we send a questionnaire to the client, which is a data capture kind of questionnaire, asking various questions. One of which, of course, is, you know, where does your money come from to enable you to buy the property? So therefore, we're, we're fishing to try and find as much information about the client's money and the source of it. Obviously, part of it will be from the, the bank and, and getting a mortgage. And then the remaining balance could be, you know, could be from savings or uh, you know, to encompass this title, it could be uh, a gifted deposit. Money's been given to them from friends, family members, that kind of thing. I think one of the clues is in the title there, Stu, and this is a, mis a misunderstanding, certainly amongst, you know, buyers and their families. But interestingly, I also find amongst the lawyers acting for them, the clue is in the title. It is called a gifted deposit. And I'm afraid rather boringly, um, uh, and bless anybody that's listened to my lectures, will, will find me repeating things on these that I say in those lectures. But I do, when we're talking about the status of these deposits, Stu, yeah. um, you know, I do remind people that a gift is a gift because you sometimes get sort of mixed up in this conversation about, well, you know, will my mum and dad or my uncle, you know, they want the money back when the house is sold can we have a declaration of trust? And for anybody that doesn't know, a declaration of trust is just a document that sets out really who gets what when the property is sold. But of course, that misses the point that if somebody is expecting the money back, then it's not a gift. And Quite I think right. that's a really important point. And I've never ceased to be amazed how many, you know, how many property firms, you know, fudge that issue and get it wrong. A gift is a gift. If I give you something to do on December the 25th, I'm not going to be asking for it back on, uh, you know, on January the 28th. So a gift is a gift. And I think that's a really important, a very, very obvious point yeah. that lots of people seem to miss. So it's I think if anybody's got a client and they're talking about declarations of trust or they're talking about getting the money back, not a gift, stop and get off. And of course, the point there is if a lender these days gets a whiff that mum and dad want their money back, that's... Certainly in my experience, Stu, and I'd be interested to hear yours, that's probably going to scupper the mortgage offer these days. Would yeah, you say that's a fair comment? Yeah, I, I, it's likely the lender will withdraw the offer. So what, what clients um, you know, need to bear in mind is that they're making a declaration of fact to their lender to enable them to, 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 you know, to, to have X amount of borrowing. And that declaration will say that you know, they're obtaining monies from, from wherever it's coming from and it's not repayable. And one of the conditions of the mortgage will be that any money that's been utilised um, apart from the mortgage is not from a 
further borrowing. So therefore, even if it is mum and dad, okay, um, if it's not a gift, it's, it's further borrowing. If it's got to be repaid, if there's any kind of monthly installments that mum and dad might want, that kind of thing, then it's further borrowing. And you, you're quite right. You know, we make these declarations rather mortgage brokers to the banks when it gets to the legal process, people kind of forget that those declarations have previously been given. When we then correspond with the bank, we're giving our certificate of title to tell the bank that, you know, everything matches in their mortgage offer. So as you quite rightly say, if it's a gift, it's a gift, it's not repayable. So we can't entertain any kind of trust deed or declaration of trust, which stipulates otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to do. Actually, again, it's just this people. I think a, a buy, you know, buyer borrowers forget that, you know, um, the, the legal basis upon which they are getting their mortgage, their offer of funds from this lender is based on the statements they've made. And if the lender subsequently finds out via their, the conveyance or anywhere else that those are not actually the correct facts you know that mortgage offer will be withdrawn from underneath them and what I mean you mentioned mortgage brokers and um, something one of my uh, real sort of conveyancing bugbears actually um, is that you know in most uh, most cases of course you know good mortgage brokers of course are going to declare to the lender at the point the application is made that you know for example mum and dad are um, gifting these funds. Uh, Mum and dad have probably already signed a letter that's gone to the lender to to confirm that, but the mortgage offer gets spewed out by the lender's due. And I can't. I've probably seen you know two mortgage offers in my entire career, in which the lender acknowledges that they know the gift is coming from mum and dad. Because actually, if that's been made clear to them at the point of application, I have no idea why the lenders fail to mention it and then we as the lawyers have to go through all that process again and I certainly find that that's going to add to, to, to the time frame because we then as you say do our due diligence our client tells us you know we then say to the client well we've got to tell your lender and of course they then get a bit jinked off because they say yeah. well that, well well we've already told the lender that but you oh, know right, client so. need to understand that if it's not in the offer we've got to do it all again I think it might be that sort of, uh, and I don't know this for sure, but it might be that kind of process that the right hand and the left hand aren't speaking to each other. Yeah. So you've got the mortgage broker concentrating on the financial um, side of things, making sure that the client's eligible for the mortgage based on the criteria that they're submitting. Uh, of course, when we come into the equation, we're on the legal sphere. So we're dealing with probably different departments of banks, so on and so forth. Yeah. The key is that when we order our mortgage money, we're giving a certificate to the bank. Once we give that certificate to the bank that you know the transaction's been compiled in a certain way, it has to be done in that certain way. If we don't, and, and if a client um, you know would go and do a declaration of trust, whatever, you know, we're talking mortgage fraud because the bank is only giving yeah. money to that person based on the facts that have been submitted to them. And I think maybe the seriousness um, in the bank's eyes means that they want that clarification from the lawyers that are not only acting on behalf of the client, but of course, you know, we're acting on behalf of the bank as well. So we're giving that declaration that, you know, in, in our opinion and to our knowledge, you know, the clients aren't having further monies borrowed from other parties, mum and dad, whatever the case may be. Well, of course, the cynic in me, Stu, would also say my, my, my conveyancing matters mantra, we, of course, are properly insured. 
So the bank wants us to give the confirmation that, or the lender wants us to give the confirmation as to the source of funds. So if that subsequently turns out to be untrue, they can clobber us because uh, they know they're not they know they're not going to get anything out of the client that of course is the issue i suppose as well isn't it and of course the reason we do this for anybody that's watching that doesn't know of course is the, the, the you know the money laundering due diligence as well we've got we've always had and i think it's interesting because you know we've always had this responsibility to the banks to find out where the money's coming from and i remember years ago you know i had a sort of question on my you know, my purchase checklist when I saw a client, you know, is the money coming from your own resources? I mean, it's a question I've asked for years, but frankly, years ago, I would just ask it, tick it and think I'd done the, the, the bit. Uh, and by standards 20 years ago, I probably had. But of course, now we go into much, much more detail as to source of funds. Uh, and source of wealth, you know, finding out where the client's money is coming from uh, and where they got the, you know, where they got the money from, sort of thing. Um, so we talk about sort of bank of mum and dad typically, Stu. So if yep. you find out that, uh, that you know, mum and dad or anybody else are, um, are contributing funds towards the purchase price, what, what are the steps generally that you would consider to be best practice around that yep. sort of thing? Yeah. Well, first of all, don't forget, if mum and dad are providing monies direct to a law firm, in addition to carrying out all the ID checks, money laundering procedures uh, against the client, we've then got to do exactly the same against mum and dad as well. So we need to uh, guarantee where the money's coming from, the source of funds, etc. So that's the first point. Um, if we find out that the clients, you know, are getting a gift, okay, from mum and dad, we simply report that to the bank. So it's a simple case of telling the bank that, you know, £20,000 will be um, put into the transaction from mum and dad. Um, we at PCS, we have a standard template that mum and dad can sign to say that it's a gift. Yeah. Um, it's only going to be used in relation to the purchase. It's not repayable. They don't expect it back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They sign that um, and that goes off to the bank. Some banks do have their own kind of form, their own template, which again, the clients can sign. Um, sorry, the, the mum and dad can sign. So it's simply a case in layman's terms of letting the banks know. It's no more complicated than that. Yeah, I think one thing um, firms need to watch out for, particularly perhaps maybe less experienced colleagues watching it, of course, and I know I've mentioned this on the conveyancing matters already. Um, I don't know what we're going to do when we've got like 200 of these up, Stu. How, re how repetitive are we going to get? I don't know. We're going to look really grey and really old, aren't we? You're not <laughs> going to be tanned anymore. You're going to be <laughs> as pale as me. No. <laughs> um, one of the things, of course, that, that from the legal side we have to remember is that if people are coming into our office or are, you know, scanning and sending whatever we do, if they're giving us their ID, if mum and dad or the personal person's gifting are giving a firm their identification documents, there is that connection in their mind that that firm is then acting for them as well. There's that yep. idea that the firm may well be acting for mum and dad. And of course, particularly if there's a first time buyer involved, and that perhaps typically is the scenario, of course, to be fair, mum and dad might want to be involved, you know, with, yep. you know, with Jim's purchase of his first flat. So they might actually, if we have a meeting, which of course, you know, we won't be at the moment probably, but um, they're going to come along to the meeting. And of course, there, there will be, there could be this sort of, this tacit but incorrect assumption on their part that we are acting for them as well. Definitely. So I think we've got to be really alive to that conflict and we've got to make it clear in the letter to them we're not acting for you, get your own advice. But I think yeah. that becomes even more heightened if, um, if mum and dad come in. I or, think, you know, yeah, we, we, definitely. We liaise with them. 
I think where, where the scenario sort of follows through, if you like, uh, mum and dad are given a gift um, to their son and, and, and you know, uh, his girlfriend kind of thing. A um, couple of years time, they split up. Um, then there's a dispute, that kind of thing. Then mum and dad might question the advice they received. Um, I think from a lawyer's point of view, it's always advantageous that when you correspond with mum and dad, um, that you, you know, ask them to seek separate independent legal advice yeah. if they're at all concerned make it absolutely crystal clear that you know, we're not um, advising them. That's the first point. And another point um, to lawyers, which um, I've seen go completely unnoticed before as well, is obtaining the client's consent to report, um, or, or obtaining the client's consent, that you're gonna report this issue to the bank. Because um, we've yeah. had scenarios before where banks weren't aware of certain scenarios, weren't aware that the money would be coming from a third party, a friend or whatever the case may be. And if that differs from the information that was submitted to the bank when the application was made, potentially what you say to the bank could result in the bank withdrawing them all. Yeah. So not only must you always make it crystal clear to mum and dad, for example, that you're not acting on their behalf, um, you must make it crystal clear to the client that you need to report this to the bank and seek their consent to do so. The clients don't allow you to do that, then you shouldn't really be acting. You know, there should be no reason well, why they wouldn't allow you. So Yeah, um, you're not going to get past first base. So, I mean, I have no. a situation, Stu, um, where, uh, and, you, you know, we say bank of mum and dad because that's the sort of typical quick um, Bond, sort yeah. of moniker for this. But actually, and they're the simple ones usually. The more complicated ones is where, you know, clients have got funds coming from a number of different sources. And I certainly had a scenario where, um, you know, the client gave me quite, you know, to be fair, on our standard questionnaire, a reasonable amount of detail uh, about where the money was coming from. Some was coming from abroad. Some was coming from the sale of a family business abroad. You know, there was quite a lot. It was quite complex. And I do think firms need to think then about the amount of time and money it's going to take them to, to, to do all that checking. That might be something you want to add to your list of, you know, if this becomes very complicated to, uh, to find out where your money's coming from, we, we reserve the right to look at our fees again. Um, because none of this, of course, is the legal work on their transaction per se. This isn't looking at the title and advising on the searches. Nothing's other conveyancing part of it. Exactly. But actually, um, I had a scenario where I went back to the client and said, right, you know, this is this is what I am going to declare to the bank. And I did because I knew the mortgage broker. I knew of him. I went back to the mortgage broker and said, this is what I'm telling my client. And, and actually, I mean, the harsh reality is, and I mean, no disrespect to any mortgage brokers out there, but this was what happened. The mortgage broker had, had basically been a little economical with the specifics, shall we say, on what was declared to the bank. Um, and he said, oh, that's not what I told them. So if I'm in, if I'm in contact with the broker, I will actually contact the broker and say, I'm declaring this to the bank. I'm not saying, yeah. can I have your consent to that? But yeah. I'm saying to the broker just to let you know. And actually the bank in that, in that instance did withdraw the offer. And the broker then had to sort of go groveling back and put the package back together again. And we got the offer eventually. But the point was, there was just quite a big, because it yeah. was complicated, there was quite a big difference in what the broker had told the, the, the lender and what I declared to the lender, which was obviously what my client had told me directly. I, so. I, I, find, I find it absolutely incredible that the lenders are so risk adverse that the, um, you know, the, 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 the way we deal with the transaction, we act on the lender's behalf, we receive a mortgage offer from them, which is their instruction. I find it incredible that there's no information within the mortgage offer 
relating to the information submitted to them from the broker. You would have thought, wouldn't you? It'd be su you know, such an easy job to actually include within the mortgage offer everything that was submitted to them. Surely as a conveyancer, your job would be so much easier if you could actually see in writing within the mortgage offer what the broker has submitted to them. Not because the broker may be you know, dodgy um, or anything like that, but purely a mistake could have been made. There could have been a small amount of detail that might not be right. Wouldn't it be so much easier? Um, and wouldn't well, it cut down so much admin and, and, and there'd be so much less risk if we could just see the application that was made? I can then visually see the brokers told the bank that, you know, mum and dad are lending 20 grand in the bank are okay with it. Or, 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 you know, the details that are submitted in terms of the type of property or, or, or whatever. You know, even now, I would say that there's less and less and less mortgage offers that contain a copy of the survey. Now, if I think back 10, 15 years ago, yeah. I'm sure more lenders sent the survey to us. But yeah, they did. Incredible. This might be the first time I, I sort of disagree with you on camera, Stu, actually, in convincing matters, because I, the only concern I would have, and I can see there would, I can see the practicalities, I think the massive risk to conveyance is if we did get the, um, the, the financial details and the applicant details from the lenders is what the way the lenders would see that is I think they would then just see the they would be shifting the risk of verification of that information onto us so I think the problem is um, that would be something else that we would then be certifying is correct and it's really funny that you say about the um, uh, the valuations because actually uh, if, if memory serves me correctly one of the reasons we, we actually ended up with the CML handbook is because, and I think it was Halifax that took this to the real sort of zenith, but what Halifax did, um, a, a num obviously a number of years ago now, is they essentially, via the back door, when, we, when they all had their own instructions, when the lenders had their own non-standard instructions, they essentially, because they produced the valuation, Stu, they shifted the onus of confirming all the valuation issues onto the conveyances. And that was, I think, the straw that broke the camel's back um, in terms of liability. And that's actually what was one of the, one of the sort of, you know, real push points to get what was then the CML handbook, now UK mortgage lenders, finance, et cetera, finance lenders. Um, I wonder, Stu, I mean, probably just to kind of wrap up this, because uh, we only thought this would be quite short, but I think this is, uh, you know, topical, risky, difficult and interesting. Um, do you get a feeling, I'm certainly reading it a bit, that um, that actually there are going to be fewer um, uh, sort of, or the bank of mum and dad sort of gifted deposit scenarios are going to be tightened up a bit by the lenders? Without doubt. We're already seeing it now. I think um, the lenders uh, in the current market where they're so busy, I think they'd be less inclined to lend um, where gifts are being provided, especially where those gifts are potentially from non-family members. Um, yeah. I've certainly seen less and less and less of that, but I think as we go on, um, there'll be you know less of a need for, for the lenders to, to to take those kind of risks. Yeah, I mean this time next year, of course, you you know they'll probably be taking money from just about anywhere, won't they? But uh, and of course, probably in conclusion, one of the things I'd remind again, perhaps the more junior colleagues that are watching, is is particularly where gifted deposits are concerned. Lots of different, all the different lenders have quite a lot of different requirements here. So you know, always go to the part two handbook requirements because they will be different. And actually you saying about family members triggered it because there are certain lenders who, for example, in part two, specifically require the money to come from family members only. Um, and we do need to make sure we comply with that too. Definitely. Uh, well, that was, uh, that was a little bit controversial, a bit interesting, Stu. And hopefully that has, um, uh, has given some uh, practitioners a bit to think about. So uh, thanks ever so much for that. 
Uh, and uh, we'll no doubt be back soon, I would have thought. Take care. Bye.